You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, November 14th, 2012, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hey, boys and girls. How's everyone? Good. How are you, Evan? Pretty good. Very fine. Thank you. Rebecca, I understand you have an uplifting this day in skepticism for us. Yeah, I was trying to find a a fun one, but uh, there was one big news story that jumped up jumped out at me for uh for this week november 18th 1978 uh, more than 900 people died due to the mass murder suicides of the people's temple cult which was led by jim jones better known as the jonestown massacre uh, we have talked about this in the past but there's one fact that i wanted to call out uh which might make this slightly more uplifting even though it's still kind of not but I wanted to, to highlight one particular person, and that's Congressperson Leo J. Ryan, who was one of the victims, but he's the only U.S. Congressperson to have died in the line of duty. Ryan was a representative in San Francisco, and he was very vocally critical of all kinds of cults, including Scientology and the Unification Church, which was Reverend Moon's church. He started getting these reports from his constituents who were worried about friends and family members who were getting involved in the People's Temple, which was headquartered in San Francisco, but had locations all around California. And in 1974, of course, the cult began moving to a farm in Guyana, now known as Jonestown. Uh, and that was to escape growing media scrutiny. And Ryan heard from these constituents who were telling him that people were being held at Jonestown against their will. So he asked Congress for permission to investigate the cult, but he faced this just a load of red tape, basically. Uh, despite that, he was eventually able to fly to Guyana to see what was going on. And he went over there with several aides and a number of journalists who wanted to come along for the ride. When he got to Jonestown... Several cult members told him and his entourage that they desperately wanted help escaping. And Ryan's crew took the defectors to the nearby airstrip to get them to safety, but they were intercepted by cult members who opened fire on them, killing Ryan, three journalists, and one of the defectors. Ryan was posthumously awarded the Congressional Gold Medal for being possibly the greatest, most badass congressperson to have ever served. I mean, can you imagine your present-day congressperson flying to another continent in order to make sure that you were safe? It beggars belief, but he did it, mm-hmm. and he paid the ultimate price for it, yeah, unfortunately. It well, Jay, tell us about the latest UFO over Denver. Fox 31 out of Denver in the United States did a TV report titled Mile High Mystery UFO Sightings in Sky Over Denver. So an investigative reporter named Heidi Hemet led the report, and she said on air that she was skeptical the first time she heard about the mysterious objects taking off and landing in a populated area over Denver, which I found very ironic that she used that word skeptical. She used it as if, you know, she was skeptical, which she isn't. So anyway, her her source of the video is a man who also did not want to be identified, which I found unsettling. The UFOs that this guy captured on the camera, on his digital video camera, can't be seen unless you slow down the footage. Because, according to him, they were moving so fast that the human eye couldn't pick up on them until you slowed the video down. 
so they slow the video down and the TV station and the uh, and a photojournalist from the TV station actually brought a, an expensive camera to the location which was like a, a turned over field it looked like a, a farming field and they put their camera there and they videotaped the same area of Denver around the same time that this guy taped his and they found the same thing this they captured the same exact type of stuff which you know what is it what are these things that are in a field out, you know, in the middle of nowhere, zipping past a camera or, you know, far away. Like, what could they possibly be, guys? What can or they be? Buzzing around the camera. <laughs> yeah, right? Mm. You look at the video that's, that, that'll be on the link, uh, to the show and the absolute very first thing, a nanosecond after your brain registers what it's seeing, the first thing your brain says is, it's a fly. It's an insect. It looks like an insect. It moves like an insect. It buzzes around like an insect. And you know what? It's not far away. It's right up on the camera. It's like probably a foot in front of the camera. Yeah, we've seen evidence of this before. This this is common. And we have talked about it before on the show. And these turn out to be bugs. It's amazing. It's I, amazing. I know, Jay. A lot of those people just really just didn't quite understand. One, somebody said that, oh, wait, this, this, this is a bug. We're looking at bugs. And this other guy said, it can't be bugs because bugs don't fly higher than the clouds. Like, wait a second, dude. Whoa, <laughs> oh my God. really? They brought in an aviation expert named <laughs> that, Steve Cowell. And he, he's a former commercial pilot. And I, this is, this is so entertaining. It blows my mind. He's an instructor, a flight instructor and an FAA accident prevention counselor. And very convincingly, he argued that there is just no explanation for this. And then the news reporter at the end of the newscast said, oh, and it's not bugs. It's not bugs. The guy said it's not bugs. Okay, the so guy the guy says, says yeah. it's not bugs. So therefore, it cannot absolutely be bugs, but it is bugs. Wait, wait, just, why would that guy lie? Come on, Jay. Come on. It just it boils my blood. Like, you're on TV. Your job is to report the news, information, unbiased, and as logically as you can. Fail. No good. It, you can't. It was a hundred percent failure. It was a total failure. And, it, <laughs> and no, she said like four times. And it's not. Stop saying it's a bug. It's not a bug. Well, I wonder why so many people Gosh. are are telling you it's a bug because it's a, it's a damn bug. It was yeah. so obvious. There's a couple other things. Not that you need anything more, but from the illusory perspective, you know, of the guy who did the film, who thinks that he's looking at spacecraft. He thought, oh, it must be landing somewhere at, at these at these crossroads, and of course, there's nothing but residential houses there. Oh, okay, so these ships are taking off and landing every day in a <laughs> residential area, and nobody sees them because they're moving so fast. I guess or hears them, yep. yeah, or hears them, and nothing got picked up on radar. I guess they just have nothing on radar technology. And, yeah, they called NORAD or something, and, and they found some way, obviously, to suppress the sonic booms. Yeah, right. Uh. I mean, didn't that didn't that Guys say that this thing must have been traveling at uh, at multiple Mach speeds. Okay, no, you know, no sonic booms, nothing that. Not even that. Even you know, if you're landing in an area like that, that just the disturbance to the air of something moving so fast that right. it's not visible. Bob, to the you naked can't eye. question future technology. <laughs> Come on. Oh my God. The guy who who for some reason doesn't want the the public to know who he is, who's capturing all this incredible footage. At one point, like you know, the and I'm just gonna very proudly call this a fly because it was a fly. Okay, so the fly. Jay might have been a bee. Whatever right. the fly. <laughs> what kind of fly? The, you know, you ever see a fly and they're up close and their their skin is kind of shiny, like they actually look like yeah. there's like a rainbow effect going on. Iridescence, yeah. yeah. Exactly. So the fly, 
changes direction and he freezes the frame and he goes, rocket booster. You know, no, oh, yeah. no, no, that's see, that <laughs> is the called, after, that's yeah. the, after the afterburner yeah. is actually the sun like bouncing off of the fly's body. Yeah, I think this guy was actually smart. This guy was smart in not to reveal his name because when it, <laughs> when it does come out that this was a bug, he just saved himself years of people going up to him with fake bugs, flying them around <laughs> his face and saying, look, a UFO, look, a UFO. Oh, and, and I think somebody's got to get down there with a real camera with, to the, with the right settings, high definition, high frame rate so that you could actually see what this thing is and because you could focus in on it. It's, it's blurry. You, you can't see what it is. You can see the glinting, Jay, that you mentioned, but you can't really make out any structure at all. But if you film it properly, you could, you can do it, especially of if you course, film Bob. It. But and there... somebody's got to do that. It's a, it's such an obvious next step, just to completely put this to bed. It would be an easy test to devise to make sure it's an incident. There's a couple of things you could easily do, and the comments to the article have multiple suggestions. Interestingly, this guy's been doing this for a month, like every day almost for a month. He's been seeing this, and he hasn't done even basic techniques to try to challenge or question his assumption. So no. here's two things that were proposed in the comments that, that w would be very easy. One is hang a sheet 10 feet away from the camera. If there are bugs, you'll see the bugs in front of the sheet. Yeah, very good. That's a good one. So much for the yeah, far yeah. off in the distance. Number two, just put a second camera up and triangulate. Yeah. You could triangulate far away. You could triangulate close up. Let's see which one captures the, the, the thing at the same time. Yeah, but, My yeah, money's but, on the close up triangulation. Yeah, th you're right, Steve. That Those are great suggestions. But they, they don't even see that. They can't even imagine that because to them, this has got to be a big object far away moving fast. And they can't get past that illusion. That They can't get past that. It doesn't even occur to them. Well, But that's the point. They did... They didn't do a scientific test to try to challenge their assumptions or to con or to test alternate hypotheses. They just are you know, imagining that it's a flying saucer they don't and, want to, and fitting Steve. the interpretation into it. They don't and, want to. It's and the, it is, this all right. Here's the final thing that he said: they seem to be most active between noon and one. Interesting. Do you know what else is most active in the middle of the day when it's warmest? Mm. Bees. Bugs. Yeah, oh. it, it was a fly, or a bee. Fly. I think it was a bee. <laughs> I think I think we blew this one wide open. All right, uh, that was our fish in the barrel segment for this week. But Re <laughs> Re Re Rebecca, you're going to explain to us why, for some people, math physically hurts. That's uh, yeah, that's what the headlines are announcing due to a study by psychologists at University of Chicago and Western University in Ontario, Canada. They have apparently found that doing math literally makes your brain hurt, sort of, but not really. Sort of, but not really, yeah. What happened was they, they took 14 adults who said that they, in general, are very anxious about math, and they had these people do math problems while in an fMRI which is obviously the best way to help people with math anxiety. You know, you strap them to a gurney, you put their head in a tiny cage, put them through an enormous worrying magnet, and then make them solve math problems. Anxiety cool. gone. Uh, the researchers say that they found that when they told the subjects they were about to get a math question, the subject's brain showed activity in the part of the brain that registers real physical pain. And that went away once they actually started working on the problem. Now, this is being reported with headlines saying that you know, math makes your brain hurt. But the subjects didn't actually feel pain. It's just that their brains were reacting as though they were feeling pain. 
The researchers point out that the brain reacting as though the body's in pain could contribute to people with math anxiety actually doing worse on math tests, which can feed back into the anxiety. This isn't just out of nowhere. This There are a lot of studies that show that your ability to score on math tests does vary depending on how anxious you are about taking the test. For instance, there are a few very famous studies showing that female mathematicians who are reminded about the stereotype of women being bad at math tend to express more negative emotions and anxiety and then do worse on subsequent like tests. Like that Barbie doll that said math math class is hard. Yeah, that Barbie doll obviously had a lot <laughs> of math anxiety. Um, so, yeah, that's the study. There are a couple of issues that I saw straight out. Um, number one is that the study doesn't show that this is something unique to math. It only shows that the brain freaks out when people are upset and anxious about something. Uh, number two, also, um, they might not have found the brain reacting as though it was in pain. Uh, the authors in the study actually note that it might be just the brain reacting to a threat, which is already how we categorize a lot of anxiety. Like if you have to give a speech and you experience this rush of adrenaline and that old f flight or fight response, uh, you know, because our brains have evolved to deal with stress by assuming that there's a lion about to eat us. That's the common knowledge, at least. Uh, but at the same time, it's it's kind of interesting that our dumb human brains can't figure out the difference between a serious bodily threat and a math problem, you know. And but I don't more... think we can even say that, Rebecca. Yeah. Because different parts of the brain will participate in different networks. And you can't necessarily conclude that because the same part of the brain is lighting up, that it's serving the same function that it is in other situations that also make it light up. It's not that simple. And so, you know, that, that part of the brain may be contributing to a negative emotion or experience about the, you know, the math anxiety, but it doesn't imply even that it's analogous to physical pain or to other forms of anxiety. It could be serving a completely different function, right? So I, I, you can't even assume that analogy that, that the brain is responding to math anxiety as it does to other threats or to physical threats or to pain. That is a huge assumption not justified by the evidence. Mm. I don't know. You're the brain doctor. Okay. So now we're at the point where study shows nothing, basically. <laughs> <laughs> the study showed nothing, everybody. It's not interesting. No, you know, it, it, it's the kind of thing where, you know, what these, these, one-off fMRI studies are really hard to interpret. Even assuming that the results are reliable, which for small studies is a coin flip in my opinion, to be generous. Yeah, I mean, even there if you, 14 adults. Yeah, yeah. Even if, even if you buy that, it, there's, the, the interpretation is extremely complicated. And, and this kind of straightforward interpretation is, is, is almost silly in my opinion. Maybe if you, you know, they do four or five or six other fMRI studies, as you say, looking at other effects, altering variables, we might get a better idea of what's actually going on here. It's, it's, I don't think this one study is really interpretable. The next news item is similar in that we're talking about fMRIs, you know, functional magnetic resonance imaging, which is a technique of, of, uh, of looking at blood flow to the brain and inferring brain activity from that. Uh, in this case, researchers have used fMRI scans to study the brains of people who are comatose. This is research that's been going on 
for for a few years, and in fact, the study that I'm talking about was published in 2010, but it's in the news again because of a documentary that's com- coming out about this technique in some of these patients. And I had to talk about it because this was, you know, the most emailed item of the week. You know, dozens of our listeners sent me emails saying, what does Steve think about this study? So I did write about it for Neurological so you could read a detailed analysis, but but quickly... What what the researchers did is they looked at 54 patients who were in either a persistent vegetative state or a minimally conscious state. These are similar conditions. Follow they're chronic conditions following some kind of a brain injury where the the person cannot become conscious in a persistent vegetative state. By definition, there is no interaction with the environment, and there are no signs of conscious awareness on the exam. Uh, if the patient displays conscious awareness or that they are responding to external stimuli in any way, then by definition they're not persistent vegetative. Uh, then we would categorize them. If they had you know minimal signs of conscious, then they're minimally conscious, a minimally conscious state. Not much of a difference between these two things. There's a slight difference in prognosis. If you're persistent vegetative, your prognosis is zero, essentially. If you're minimally conscious, it's almost zero, but it's it's very very low. But but there's there's a chance that you may improve over over time. You know, to the point you're never gonna. It's not like the movies where you're in a you're in a vegetative state and then one day you wake up and then you know a week later you're you're neurologically normal, right? Like in that movie Dead Zone. You guys remember that movie Dead Zone? Oh yeah, yeah. 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 Christopher Walken. But Christopher Walken. Yeah, it's like five years later he just wakes up. Uh, it no. doesn't happen that way. Or Uma Thurman. Yeah, Steve. Kill Bill. Isn't it true that the longer you're unconscious, the more screwed up you're going to be if you ever do come come back? Yeah. So time is everything. Yeah. So the the farther out you are, you know, the longer you've been in a coma, the the probability of ever having a meaningful neurological recovery plummets. I mean, it just drops very it drops you know asymptotically to zero. Uh, and if you if you are um, in a minimally conscious state and you do eke over to being a little bit more conscious, you know, some patients have done that where they could, you know, they could look around and they could make eye contact and maybe even participate in their feeding, but that's like as good as it gets. They're still profoundly neurologically impaired. They just sort of, their brain improved beyond the point where they can do, they have a little bit more functionality, but they never return to any semblance of a normal life. But, you know, it is very important for families, you know, to know, what the prognosis is, what the state is, you know, some p- families have this very deep-seated belief that their loved one is in there, you know, they just can't communicate with them. You know, the neurological exam has been shown in the last, you know, four or five years to be very imperfect. So we could talk about the routine neurological exam, uh, you know, the, even like the routine neurological coma exam, the exam that's designed to assess people who are in a coma and look for signs of consciousness versus an enhanced or really detailed coma exam. And what researchers have shown is that if you do the the enhanced exam, you pick up about 40% of people who were thought to be persistent vegetative are actually in a minimally conscious state. 40? No, not yeah. 40. 40%. 40%. 40%. Yeah. That was lower than that. What are they actually experiencing? Well, we don't know what the people are experiencing. That's a good question. We don't know. We don't know if they're forming memories. We don't know. They're just something's happening in their brain that's allowing that processing to interact with the environment, but we don't know what they're experiencing. They're not awake when they're not normally conscious. Quality of life is... Again, we have no idea. We could also describe another category called locked in, which mm. in which patients... That's the worst. Yeah, that's the worst, where they are conscious, 
but they're unable to move, to show any outward signs of their consciousness. Maybe they're blind and deaf as well. Maybe their language area is gone, but they're, they're in there somewhere. They are in there. They're, they're locked in. Enter now functional MRI scan. Also EEG analysis can be, can be used in the same way where we can look at brain function and use that as an additional tool to try to sort out these patients. And what we're finding is that indeed, uh, with this technique, some people who were clinically persistent vegetative do show some signs of consciousness. Uh, I know we talked about the study from a few years ago where they, in, in, an, in one patient, they asked them who was in a coma, they asked them, imagine yourself walking around the house, which engages the you know, visual spatial part of the brain. And they said, imagine yourself playing tennis which engages the premotor cortex. And that shows two very distinct, in healthy neurologically intact controls, that shows two very distinct patterns of activation on fMRI scan. And they were able to show that in somebody who appeared to be uh, in a persistent vegetative state, they actually were able to reliably show one or the other pattern on fMRI when commanded to do, to imagine themselves either walking around their house or playing tennis. Now, this current study with 54 patients, they applied the same technique. They found that five out of the 54 patients were able to show the differences in the fMRI patterns when asked to do one of those two cognitive tasks. That, of course, means that 49 weren't. So still, you have a very small minority of these patients who appear to be minimally conscious are showing that maybe they have some more consciousness than we than is uh, demonstrable on exam. Although it is possible that some of those other 49, some of them could have been deaf and minimally conscious, but they just didn't hear the the question, the command. That's a good point, yeah. Which is yeah, or, even scary, or, or, which is scary, too. Or aphasic, or their, their language right. area wasn't working. Right. Uh, exactly. I found it interesting, and I don't know how blinded you know, the evaluators were to this, but assuming they were that... All five of the patients were in a coma as a result of physical trauma, trauma yeah. as opposed to anoxia. So when you have anoxia, we call it an anoxic ischemic injury, the whole brain gets wiped out. You know, you, you, the whole brain lacks oxygen. All the brain cells are damaged. The patients, that's a worse prognosis because nothing is working. Everything is impaired to some degree. Um, for, with trauma, though, maybe some parts of the brain are damaged and other parts of the brain are working relatively better. There's patchy damage. And it makes more sense that, and that's the kind of patient where maybe there's there's more consciousness than is evident because of things like blindness, deafness, paralysis, and there and there could be parts of the brain that are relatively intact and able to generate some conscious awareness. That lent it a little bit of credibility in my book. I don't know. I think it's probably still had a, a decent amount of credibility. I mean, these these I, I know there's a lot of art to interpretation of F fMRI, but. But st I mean, the patterns are distinct. Well, for healthy controls, it's dramatic. But if you look at the if you look at the sub the five subjects and and their patterns, and also then they were asked questions, and they were supposed to like imagine themselves doing one thing for a yes and the other thing for a no. Right. So they were able to answer yes or no questions. The patterns are kind of all over the place, oh, and and the overlap in the error bars is huge. So I don't know. I mean, I, I the, the researchers. You know, seem to think that the results were fairly robust and reproducible. If that's the case, it's plausible. I buy it. You know, I, I just don't know how well, how rigorously blinded it was, and if there right. if there was any data mining going on or selectivity. Um, I think it's plausible. It's believable. It's possible. But I'm also I'm not ready to sign off on it and say this is absolutely the case. 
and let's move forward. I think we, you know, it needs to be reproduced, um, independently yeah. because it's, there's just too many opportunities in this kind of study for confirmation bias and, you know, data mining, et cetera. I mean, if you could, if you could have fruitful conversation or interaction with somebody like that, I mean, they, it could really go a long way to, I mean, at least making their care more, you know, it's more tolerable. Like, hey, you know, they could find out if they're in pain or, or what decisions they want to make. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's the utility here. First of all, I think it's just helpful for the family to know if. But that's key. Yeah. That's, and, that's and, and actually it's, that's, yeah, it's, it's for, again, for, for 49 of those patients, the answer was no, there's nobody home. You know, that they're, they're not able to show any sign that they're able to modulate their brain activity based upon command. So that could help families let go and, perhaps forego aggressive therapy or prolong the inevitable, et cetera. So, you know, either way, I think it's, it's useful information to have. And, of course, the ultimate you know, potential benefit would be able to allow a patient to communicate and to direct some of their own care, and, you know, that, and that might help their quality of life. Let's move on. Evan, you're going to tell us about a new planet that has been discovered recently. Yeah. So the BBC has reported that astronomers have discovered a rogue planet – and that's such a cool term for these kinds of planets, <laughs> yeah. you know, rogue planets. I mean, you know, let's face it. Uh, so astronomers have discovered a rogue planet that is a paltry 100 light years away from us and, and our system. And we've talked about rogue planets before on the show. They are planets which uh, wander the vastness of space and are not in orbit around any star or other large object. Um, these planets have either been ejected from their former solar systems, or they were never gravitationally bound to a star or other large mass object in space in the first place. Um, it's a failed star, in other words. Essentially, yes. Uh, brown dwarf category similar uh, to that, perhaps. Although this so, is this um, is too small to even be a brown dwarf. Too small to be a brown dwarf, but still uh, big as far as planets go. They, they yeah. say it has a mass about four to seven times that of Jupiter. Wow. Yeah. Thank God, because there was a lot of nagging going on earlier, and I'm starting to feel really bad for this star. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Failed star, cool. not even big Failed. enough to be a brown dwarf. <laughs> no wonder it's wandering out there by itself. Seriously. It feels so lonely. But it's a planet. It's, it's huge. So it just huge. depends on your reference frame of reference, I guess. Yeah. Huge but planet. yeah, but it's clearly it's clearly a planet from the research, and it also it's, I think it's also important to to remind people we've talked about this before that there's a lot of these rogue planets out there, a lot maybe more than than there are stars. Remember what it was like some yeah. crazy a number. Est- it was like yep. what that many estimates estimates are as high as one hundred thousand times more than the number of stars in our Milky Way. That'd be cool. I don't think we should be so surprised based on the number of these things that we found one relative, so relatively close to us. There are probably others that we just haven't discovered yet, but with uh, microlensing, the technique by which astronomers are able to measure when a planetary-sized object passes in front of a background star in its gravitational field causes a momentary increase in the visible brightness of the background star. That's how they're able to find a lot of these things. That's one of the common techniques used. But for this planet, though, it seems like they weren't using microlensing. They directly observed it in the infrared spectrum. So even though it's not a star, I guess it's still putting out a lot of infrared radiation. Even Jupiter itself emits more energy than than it absorbs in any other way. So, uh, so I could, especially one many times the size of Jupiter, yeah. I could see there's. So some I guess it's sort putting of... out a lot of infrared light. Yeah, yeah. 
Astronomers were surveying a clot of stars. A clot. Which I love that. Loca- a clot of stars. <laughs> That's awesome. Clot of stars, as it's termed, which were about 75 light years away from Earth. And this is courtesy of Phil Plate, who did a little discussion on his, on his blog post. Uh, the cluster is called AB Doridus, and it's a group of about 30 stars that are believed to have formed together, and they're kind of still drifting through space together, like this uh, little swarm of bugs or a flock of birds, essentially. And they were using uh, various measurements of the stars themselves, right? And they're able to determine that this one in particular uh, had had the uh, characteristics of a, of a rogue planet. Not that old, either. Uh, estimates are only 50 million to 120 million years old, which is, you know... It's young. Pretty, yeah, pretty young, young yeah. but ha- happy birthday nonetheless to uh, to the rogue planet, which is dubbed uh, CFBDSIR two one four nine dash zero four zero three, and they named it that because it rolls off the tongue. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Why can't I name a planet? <laughs> go, go, ahead, go ahead, Jay. Give <laughs> it name this. Can we name start with planet. the reasons? <laughs> okay. Kevin, there's Bill. Kevin, <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, Kevin one. Kevin. Almost two. anything would be better than that, right? Like it's. That's not sexy or fun or interesting or intriguing, provocative, nothing. It's just a stupid number. Well, they give well, it a number at first and then you, like, it's different for each planetary body, but, cause there's sometimes there's rules, like you have to name it after like a dead astronomer or you have to name it after a mythological being or something. So are they waiting the for Phil planets. to die or something? <laughs> <laughs> you could call it Phil. Yeah, Phil's a nice name. Phil. <laughs> All right, I dub thee Phil. <laughs> All right, thanks, Evan. Bob, yep. you're going to tell us about the Twisted Light controversy. Yeah, we covered this a while back. Jay, I think you talked about this back uh, before the summer, was it? This was a, a method of wireless data transmission uh, that seemed truly revolutionary. It was really amazing if it, if, if it pans out or if it'll pan out. Uh, there was talk of transfer speeds up to 2.5 terabits per second, which is pretty amazing. Um, that's about uh, many, many thousands of times faster than, than uh, what you, you know what your cable modem is going to be able to do at home at, if you're doing like 30 megabits per second. Another, another great analogy was uh, it's like downloading 70 DVD movies onto your mobile device in a second. Just one second. Bam. There, you got 70 movies. Uh, the theory to pull this off was put forth by researchers and physicists from the universities of Southern California and universities in China, Pakistan, and Israel. But what these guys are theorizing is that by twisting many beams of laser light of the same frequency, you can apparently encode a separate stream of information into each twisted beam of light. Each each beam is essentially a zero or a one. Now, this kind of broadband boost uh, would be gold for telecommunications firms, right? I mean, it's, they're having a very difficult time trying to find new space to use in the electromagnetic spectrum. So this would be fantastic if they can take just any given frequency and bam, you know, many, many, you know, orders of magnitude, more information in that same one frequency. Um, some researchers call this encoding many channels on the same frequency through radio vorticity, which I kind of like because it's very, very descriptive. Uh, but the most pithy name that has stuck is simply twisted light. And uh, everybody's uh, throwing those two, those two words together. Um, if you want to get a little more technical, I found this interesting. What they're doing is, or what they're proposing is that they're, ex- they want to exploit the angular momentum of photons to encode more data. And when you think of, um, 
uh, momentum, one way to think of it is just the ener- energy of motion. And, and there's two types of this angular momentum. One is spin angular momentum, and a good analogy for that is the Earth spinning around its axis. And we take advantage of that uh, by using polarized sunglasses. And, you know, in terms of su- uh, photons, sunglasses, you know, will, will filter out certain polarizations of light. Um, even 3D glasses exploited as well. But this isn't what we're talking about. We're talking about a different type of angular momentum. This is orbital angular momentum. Uh, now, a good analogy with that is the orbit of the Earth around the sun. And this is where the twisting of light comes in. So that's kind of where we were for the past few months about this. But an increasing number of researchers, especially electrical engineers, uh, though, they think that this idea is misguided and it's never going to work. Uh, I got a good quote from Bob Nevels. He's uh, of the uh, Texas A&M University. He's a former president of the IEEE Antennas and Propagation Society. He said, this would be worth a Nobel Prize if they're right. Can you imagine if all communications could be done on one frequency? If, they, if they've got such a great thing, why isn't everyone jumping up and down? Because we know it won't work. The proponents of this theory did a small public demonstration uh, earlier this year in Venice, I believe, they sent data across a lagoon in Venice using, they used multiple antennas for transmission and reception to, uh, to kind of like have a proof of concept. And the opponents argued though, that since they used, they used two, they used multiple antennas. So they had basically two modes, two modes of communication of data transfer. And that really is no different than conventional theory. Like they, they liken it to this, um, MIMO, M-I-M-O setup, which stands for multiple input, multiple output, which is an, which is a, a method, like I described, they, using multiple antennas to receive and transmit to, you know, to make a better signal, to make a more redundant signal and various things like that. And they're saying that their demonstration doesn't really show anything. It just, you, you don't need to resort to some esoteric theory of of incredible bandwidth when you're just really just using conven- really conventional theories to to do what you did during your demonstration. So right now it, it really seems hard for me to pick a winner in this race. I I kind of I have I have a bias towards physicists of course, but other discussions kind of boil down to the physicist will say stuff like you don't understand, you're not a physicist and the engineers will say, well, your demonstration can be explained by conventional theories. And then the physicist will say, well, our theory, it's really just a subset of a very well understood and accepted phenomenon, and so on. It goes back and forth. And it you know, kind of reminds me of uh, the quantum computer hubbub that was in the news the past couple of years. I think the company was D-Wave. They said they had a quantum computer, and it was kind of hard to figure out how they were doing it. You know, is it really a quantum computer or is it just a conventional computer that's kind of organized in a re- really unusual way? And, uh, so, th- so the company did these, uh, proof of concept. They did these, uh, they ran some algorithms or they solved some equations. But the big complaint was that, hey, a regular computer can do that. Why don't you have to do a demonstration that no other conventional computer could do? And then that would be much, much more compelling. So it's not a perfect analogy, but there's a lot of similarities between what's going on here. So I think th- to really resolve this, to most people's satisfaction, it's going to require some pudding, as in proof is in the pudding. Uh, the, the, the researchers really will, they need to pull off what they say they can do. Namely, they need to encode information using not two different modes of data transfer, but tens or hundreds of these possible modes. And if they can pull off something like that, I think uh, uh, more people will believe it and maybe it'll convince, it'll convince the, uh, the, the opponents of, of this theory. 
But uh, I think we're just gonna have to wait uh, to you know to really see what what happens with this. I, and I, and I hope they're right because it would be an it really would be a, a revolution in 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 data transmission. Uh, but we've got to wait. But that's why it's good that there are different specialties, you know, different disciplines yes. within science. We see this in medicine all the time too. We have different specialties that have completely different expertise, fund of knowledge, and perspective on things, and they often disagree with each other because they're coming at a question from a different angle. And I agree with you, Bob, that the proof here is going to be if if the physicists are right, which I hope they are, because the, the practical applications, they have to build a device that exploits this principle they say exists. All right. Well, Evan, it's time for Who's That Noisy? And we had, well, quite a Who's That Noisy from last week. So I'm going to play it for you right now. As a reminder, for those of you who have forgotten, last week's Who's That Noisy. Here we go. Holy shit! Right. Yep. It was some kind of electrical doohickey. Some, something with electricity and a holy something or other. Yes, lots, lots of different guesses on this one. A whole, whole host of them. I, I want to review just a couple of them. Uh, obviously electricity was one of the main, uh, thrusts of the answers here. And here, here's, here are some of them. So, uh, Ormark from the message board says this was a car hit by lightning. Adam Bellows believes that this was a battery put into a microwave oven. <laughs> uh, Patrick McComb believes this is a Tesla coil, along with Nick from the UK and uh, Vivian Levy, also a listener, Tesla coil. Ronald in Virginia, microwaving a grape cut in a certain way that it generates plasma. <laughs> certainly one of the more creative answers. Uh, but I think for the most creative answer, it has to go to our listener, um, uh, Daryl Gilliam who suggested that this is the sound that an MRI makes as it sucks a chair apart during dismantling. <laughs> a chair. <laughs> a chair. Somewhere out there, there's apparently a video of an MRI pulling a chair to pieces. This was part of the... Yeah. So <laughs> very, very, very funny answers. Very, very good answers. And a lot of them. A lot of people got that it was a microwave, obviously, from the beep and the handle and the door open and so forth. But what was actually inside there? Well, what was in there was a jar of argon gas. That's what happens when you put argon gas in well, What happens? That's why you should always it heat up your argon gas on the stovetop. It, it heats up the gas, supercharges it, and it turns into a nice blue shocks of electricity within the... Uh, within the container in which the gas resides. It's a very neat-looking effect, but as they said in the uh, description of the video, only test this uh, at your friend's mic yeah, with your friend's Don't try this don't at home. Your yeah. own. And don't don't use your own. Now, for, for this week, we're going to go back to doing a puzzle rather than a noise. We are. Yes, this is a good puzzle. Three people are interviewing for a job and are given a test. The first person to solve the test gets the job. Each person is given a hat that is either black or red. They must put the hat on and cannot look at the hat or use any method to directly discover its color. The three applicants are then put in the same room and each is further instructed to raise their hand if at least one of the other two applicants is wearing a black hat. The task is to figure out the color of the hat that they are wearing. One applicant sees that the other two applicants are wearing black hats and both have their arms raised. After a moment, 
the applicant states that they have solved the puzzle and that they are wearing a black hat. So how did they solve the riddle? This puzzle was provided to us from listener James Powell. Thank Thanks, you, James. James. Yep. Do your best. Think it through. It's a good logic puzzle. And let us know what you come up with. It'll be interesting to read your answers. And uh, we'll talk about it some more next week. All right. Thanks, Evan. And thanks, James. Uh, we're going to do one question this week. Actually, we're going to do a quick correction followed by a fo- another follow-up from last week. The quick correction is we were talking about phase velocity and group velocity velocity of light. And if you recall, I said that um, the studies showed that the phase velocity could be, uh, in this one experiment, could, could be uh, essentially infinite. That doesn't violate relativity or the speed of light because the group velocity still is limited by c. But actually, that is wrong. The group velocity in certain situations can, as it was pointed out to me, also exceed c, or the speed of light, but it is only the information velocity that can't exceed c and must obey Einstein's speed limit there. Uh, so thanks for that correction. What about However, the correction on the the bike tires? Because yes, that's the next like, thing. So uh, everybody hated that. <laughs> yeah, nobody, nobody. You guys got uh, that yeah. so wrong, and I can tell. Oh gosh. I can tell how wrong you were based on the haughtiness of the emails <laughs> we got in response. And this is, you know, some on email, some on our own forums. The guys on our forum are usually very good at giving us technical feedback and correcting our errors, like with the group velocity thing. But in this one, I I don't think they, they did a good job. So last week, we were answering a question by a listener who wanted to know why everything in the universe goes around. But he tacked on the end of that question and and the question about, like, how do bicycles stay up? Um, how are they so stable? And all I did was say, it's not the obvious answer most people think it is. It's actually very complicated, and physicists aren't 100% sure. And I left it at that. How I actually thought it – might be a good uh, problem for people to investigate on their own. But what we got, though, were a lot of people were like, good grief, it's obviously due to the, the caster effect, or it's due to the gyroscopic effect, or it's the, peop- it's the person riding the bike who's steering it that's creating the balance. And, and really dumping on me for mystery-mongering about saying that phys- physicists don't understand it. So, uh, but they were all wrong. And the whole point is that all of those answers that people think are the answer are not the most are not really the answer to to uh, the question of how are bikes self stable. So that's the the term that physicists use. Um, if you take a bicycle and you run alongside of it up, you get it up to ten or fifteen miles per hour or whatever, and then you push it wow. and let it go, it will it'll stay upright with no rider for a long time until it slows down or, or hits something that's too bumpy. But if you're on a flat surface, the bike will, will stay, stay upright and riderless for a considerable amount of time. And the question is, what process of physics is at work here to create this self-stability? The classic answers are that it's a combination of the gyroscopic effect, the rotation of the wheels, which you know, this is what we were talking about last week. That rotation does, in fact, cause a little bit of a gyroscopic effect. And, you know, because of uh, angular momentum and the, the forces at work there, that when the bicycle gets tilted over to the side, it actually creates a force that will push it back. Or that it will create a force that will turn the wheel that will tend to right the bicycle. However, that force is actually quite small and is not sufficient to explain self-stability. Further, 
engineers have built a bike with no gyroscopic effect. It has two wheels. You know, in place of each wheel are two wheels, one above the one that's touching the ground that moves in the opposite direction, right? So you have a cancellation effect. You have two wheels ah, cool. spinning in opposite directions. So yeah, so they, the oh, gyroscopic neat. effect exactly cancels itself out. So there's zero gyroscopic effect and you can create a bike with that that is still self-stable. The other effect is the caster effect. Most people are familiar with this from shopping carts. The wheels are designed so that no matter what direction you move the cart in, the wheel aligns itself with the direction of movement because of the the point of contact uh, on the floor is a little bit behind the angle of um, mm. connection, like where it's where the axis is. Uh, so that will take, causes the wheel to trail behind uh, and and self-align itself. Uh, physicists have also created a bicycle, the same one, you know, the bicycle that has the that takes out the gyroscopic effect, has the point of contact a little bit in front of instead of a little bit behind where it's anchored so that uh, it eliminates the caster effect. So with no caster effect and no gyroscopic effect, the bicycle is still self-stable. So other forces must be at work. And un- unidentified No, no. Well, so, so that's where we get into like how to talk about this. And you know w- what some people were criticizing me for was maybe overemphasizing the mystery of what forces are at work. But, you know, I, I did a lot of reading before. I wasn't, you know, pe- pe- speaking off the cuff there. I had read many, many articles about it. And in the last week, I've read many, many more and watched videos of engineering professors discuss it. And they all say the same thing, that we're not really sure or they think that this is the answer. And the math gets really complicated. You know what I mean? But it, there doesn't seem to be one uh, consensus clear-cut answer to the question of what is the factor that's at work that's causing the bike to be self-stable. There's there's multiple possible things that are contributing to the self-stability of the bicycle. It, it really is just, it's, it's a ferociously complicated problem. It doesn't mean that we have no idea what's going on or that it's mystery, a mystery or that the bike can't be self-stable or it defies physics. None of that. It just means that <laughs> it's really complicated. There are multiple effects at work. It's not the simple ones that people think it is. But it, it does have, it does, one thing that we can say for sure is that it, it is dependent upon steering. If you lock the wheel of a bike, the self-stability goes away. If you lock the handlebars so it can't move. The bike has to be able right. to steer. So when the bike tilts to one side, this, the wheel moves in such a way that it pushes the bike back to the upright. So no matter which way the bike wobbles, it's always getting pushed back towards the center. But the question is exactly what is it that's causing the bike to steer in just the right way that it pushes itself back to the midline. So, but it was, it was amusing the number of people who were like, yeah, come on, it's the gyroscopic effect. What are you talking about? It's like, nope, it's not it. It's not, it's not significant. It, while it does contribute to, to bike stability, it's not significant and it's not necessary. We are sitting here at TAM 2012 uh, with uh, Professor Bruce Hood. Uh, Bruce, welcome back to the Skeptics Guide. Well, hi there. How are you doing? So uh, I want to talk to you about a couple of things. You you gave a talk uh, just before at TAM. So tell us about your talk, and then I'm going to ask you about mm-hmm. your new book. But start with the talk. Okay, so the talk was called The, the Self-Illusion, and uh, I originally uh, thought about doing a sort of summary of the book. So it was about the issue of... Um, 
is the self really you know are, are, what is the self and is it what is it we experience and to what extent is this subjective notion of a unique coherent individual actually uh, more of a uh, an illusion in the sense that it's not what it seems and that's what I try to unfold uh, and so I was coming at it from it's, a, it's an all philosophical issue I mean I haven't not the first person amongst many to, to sort of uh, approach this topic, but I was coming at it at a kind of developmental perspective. You know, my interest is, is child development. I was trying to talk about the, the idea that there, the self can be conceptualized in different ways um, and that the development of self that we experience as an adult is one which must be built up through experiences and influences. Mm-hmm. So tell us, you know, in what ways is our subjective sense of self uh, an illusion. I, I, I draw the same distinction that William James did between the uh, the sense of the momentarily, you know, the conscious awareness of the current point in time, which is the I experience, and the sense of self, which is the identity of who you think you are based on, you know, your history. Uh, so the momentary, in the moment, experience of self is a, a, is of coherence, isn't it? I mean, if you think about the visual world, it seems seamless, it seems rich, it seems detailed. But we've known for quite a while now that actually you're only ever processing a small fraction of the world, and the rest of it is being basically confabulated by the brain. You know, you're, you don't have any color vision in your peripheral vision. It's blurred. You've got two black holes the size of fists, which correspond to the blind spots. And, um, and this is the one I, I, I think fi- people find most remarkable, is that every time you move your eyes, you're effectively blind because the visual system shuts off the information. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it works out about two and a half hours of every waking day. You don't see anything. But you would never be aware of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can, you can always try this out, and maybe your listeners want to try this. If you look in a mirror and look at your left eye and then your right eye and try to uh-huh. see it moving, you can never see your eye. I used to do that as a kid. I would stare into a mirror and try to do different things about how do I would see myself <laughs> here and how I'm looking. Yeah. And you can never quite catch yourself. You, you can never right see moment. your own eye movements. That's right. right. And that's because of cicadic suppression, which is the, um, the principle. Uh, it, we think it's to stop the, the world blurring every time you shift your eyes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so our uh, brains evolved to be useful and not necessarily accurate. Exactly. Yeah, yeah the brain is a, it, it's evolved to process information. I mean, I think the brain, and, and I'm not the first person to say this, but the brain is, you find them only in organisms which need to navigate around their world in a meaningful way. So there are many living things which don't have brains, um, but the ones with nervous systems are basically trying to keep track of where they are in the world and then build up a model of that world to use for future reference. Mm-hmm. So I think you know, brains are fit for purpose, so they don't necessarily have to be veridical representations of the external world. They're just a very good adaptation which have a specific task, which is to try and get us about. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the perceptual stream yep. is largely confabulated and it's constructed, yep. et cetera, and that's part of our self. What other aspects of the self are... are- constructed that way or illusory well i mean staying with the i moment which is the momentary notion of of of, uh you know willful action or volition i mean there are again other examples not my labs but other people have worked on this uh the sense of um initiating actions we always feel that we're you know you just picked up your cup of water you felt the urge to do so you felt that that followed on from that mental thought but we do know that in many instances, such motor actions, uh, the, the, the point at which you feel that you're actually making the decision is sometimes afterwards. In other words, there's a whole series of unconscious processes which are actually uh, initiating that, and then you mm-hmm. become aware of it, and, that, and then you link that together. Dan Wagner, um, I think has written one of the best books on this, this is The Illusion of Conscious Will, makes the point is that you need to keep track of all the um, unconscious um, elements which are feeding in and shaping your behaviors. And, and this is what he thinks that uh, consciousness is about. It's giving you the authorship of action, as it were. So, um, so many aspects of this self in the present moment are uh, constructed. 
um, mm-hmm. because there are many things which are actually uh, shaping uh, your decisions and your behaviors. But the, the remainder, the, the other side of the self, uh, the, the, the me, that's the personal identity, um, that comes from the way that you construct this sense of a character in many ways, uh, which represents everything which has influenced you in the past. And so this is the, the narrative of who you are. And we all have a sense of who we are in terms of our idealized notion and very often you know, what we try to present to other people. But in many ways, that is shaped and influenced by what we think other people think about us. So we, we try to you know, project to other people a reflected self. Uh, and that's, that's this, this idealized notion. Is that we think because that's an idealistic way to look at the world basically through our eyes and therefore we kind of project it onto, onto other people? Yeah, so the, I mean, there are, obviously there are events which are, you can't question this about where you were born, and there are real, there's reality in the world. But then that is brought together into a framework, and then you have other aspects. Well, I'm a good person. I'm a bad person. That, you know, I was dissed at this occasion. I was cheated on that occasion. You know, so you you do have these examples of all the events which are interpreted in a framework. And also, the thing about memory, as we well know, it, it's not veridical. It's always changing. It's always it's, it's fluid. So your memory is always being updated and shifted. And you know, people like Elizabeth Loftus have demonstrated mm-hmm. very effectively. Yeah, right. You just reinterpret events. Even then, talking to people. Well, about an event will we'll change that memory, just exactly. relating it to people. Well, that's right. That's why um, you know false, false memories and uh, eyewitness testimonies are notoriously um, malleable by the way that you question someone about it. You'll, you'll integrate a question and make it become part of the memory. So mm. we're not aware of that because, obviously, that's part of the whole process of the, mm. the self-illusion. But other aspects of it, for example, um, the work on cognitive dissonance and uh, attribution errors, the way that we interpret events, we, we frame them from certain perspectives. And so we don't have that objectivity that we think we have. You know? So we're always viewing and interpreting events from, from a perspective, from a characterization. So in other words, the input, which eventually becomes the memories, in is itself also distorted or yeah. it's not necessarily distorted it's just not necessarily a true reflection of the real complexity your brain's always abstracting information all the time yeah trying to fit it to a framework and that's what it does it just it sees pattern and structure all the time right so consciousness consciousness is a just a narrative that the brain is constructing from all these various things memories and sensory streams and Yes. Cognitive biases and... Well, it's more than that, of course. I mean, yeah. they're, they're, they're the, there's a whole subjectivity of consciousness, which right. is the qualia question that everyone keeps coming back to. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I think the phrase was Steve Pinker's phrase, that consciousness isn't so much the master-in-chief, but the spin doctor of experience. Mm-hmm. And I like that Ooh. because it, it kind of... That's nice. I like yeah, it. Yeah, you know, <laughs> typical Pinker. You know, it's absolutely spot on and sharp, <laughs> sharp as a knife. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, you're, you're always kind of trying to... You're, you're living in the past in many ways. You know, you're trying to... Re- Makes sense for everything. Are there exercises we can do to help improve on this sort of, you know, get a little better grasp of reality if everything is this illusion that... Uh, not, uh, not if you want to stay human. No, no. I, I, I think, I, you know, I, I don't meditate myself, but, I've, you know, this resonates with a lot of Buddhists talk about these ideas because the, the, the doctrine of Buddhism is that you, if you reach a stage of self-awareness, you can get rid of the self mm-hmm. eventually. That's the, the sense of what's called anatta. I'm not a Buddhist, but Buddha apparently claims that that, you know, that would be the state of enlightenment when you when you shed off all the perceptual experiences and you get down to the basics and then you can get rid of the self and then you've become enlightened. Uh, well, I don't know about that. Right. Uh, I mean, one of the things about this particular illusion, as I demonstrate in the talk, is that even when you know how to, that something is an illusion, you can't escape it. That's the mm-hmm. beauty of it because you are your brain. And if your brain is constrained to see the world in a particular way, 
You can't step outside your brain. But how do we know? You know, how do we know our brain isn't fooling us to a point in which it becomes sort of dangerous? You know, that we're making bad decisions as opposed to good decisions. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and this, of course, is a preoccupation with, uh, for example, behavioral economics. You know, your decision making, your probability reasoning. Yeah. I mean, we're making bad decisions a lot of the time, but in general, we make good decisions, and that's the way it's evolved. It's it's been pretty accurate most of the time, but. Well, you take that brain which evolved on the savannas uh, and then try to put it into economic situations, mm-hmm. which is not used to sort of thinking about, you know, uh, probabilities and that, right. you know, economic reasoning, then it makes lots of uh, consistent biases and errors. So, yeah. So you mentioned qualia before, mm. which is a term that refers to like, the, the subjective experience of something. And That's right. Philosophers, especially dualists, often refer to that as well. That's the one thing that we can't explain with neuroscience, and yeah. therefore there must be something else. Yeah. So, what, what is your feeling on that? Well, um, exactly. I mean, it's called the hard problem um, by uh, by philosophers, in the sense that uh, we know that consciousness is sort of um, is is, a, is an emergent property of all the unconscious processes, and we can play around with those and show that you don't notice things, and you get all the perceptual stuff. But you still have this real fundamental problem, which is how do you get this subjective experience of the the bitterness of a lemon or you know the sweetness of a strawberry you know that that in the moment experience how can you explain that in terms of just neural firings it's something which is it's an elusive type of kind of problem and it's not even clear how you could ever actually really even investigate it that's mm-hmm. part of the issue and some people just dismiss it and say well just forget about it that's just an epiphenomenon you don't have to worry about trying to explain it right mm-hmm. i've thought about it I, I i don't believe i have any insight over and beyond others but my late colleague richard gregory uh, we had the discussion once when i th- he, he hit on something which i think has merit at least considering that he thinks that this the, the quality of the consciousness is somehow flagging in the brain that you're in the present moment in time and from then it just disappears as as the you know, all the information fades. So mm-hmm. you, if you think about it, you know, you're always only sampling everything. Right. And he thinks, well, he thought, he said, well, maybe it's something to do with just the brain being aware of the present moment in time and knowing that it's not actually hallucinating or, or, or drawing on a memory. You know, there's, this, there's a qualitative difference between a, a memory or a dream, and he would argue that the quality of full consciousness. And some people say, well, no, that's not true. You know, I've had dreams which are very vivid. You don't know you're dreaming. But I, I'm not sure. Personally, I, I've not had that. I mean, my dreams, I know when I'm dreaming or I know I'm in a kind of a dream. But sitting here now in front of you guys, this is a very different real experience mm-hmm. than to that kind of, kind of dream. I don't know. I've, I've thought of that specific experience. If you all of a sudden woke up in bed right now yeah. in the next moment, I think people could convince themselves that this was a dream because – it would have to be a dream because you woke up in bed, so therefore your mm. mind would say, well, it had know. to be. No, I don't, no, I don't know. Because when you do wake up from a dream, it's a very different experience than if I suddenly transition now to waking up somewhere. I've never had this. At, you know, The thing is, when you're dreaming, mm. so people say, oh, I had a vivid dream. It seemed real to me at the time, but that was not your waking self evaluating right. that experience. Exactly. It was your dreaming self. It was exactly. a different subset of the brain, yeah. and so it's not a fair comparison. Exactly. Your waking self would have recognized that as a dream. That's what I think, yeah. yeah. But of course, we can never really know what other people's experiences are, right. because that's the problem. So but that's what lucid dreaming is, right? When yeah. you oh, sort yeah. of tip over a little bit and you start evaluating your dream state from a waking kind of perspective and you go, oh, this is, this yeah. is dreamlike. I must be dreaming. Yeah. yeah. But if you alter the brain, you change the mind. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that's the basic point. And, uh, you know, anyone who wants to kind of believe in woo and, and, and spirits and souls, well, you know, whatever. But the truth of the matter is that, you know, the evidence strongly supports the idea that it's a materialist system right and that's what it is and uh you know they said well that means you can might you, you might be able to make a sentient robot 
well, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. What's your problem? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Doug, when I've written about that, it's, I focus on the fact that they're confusing the question of does the brain cause the mind or is the brain the mind yeah. with how does the exactly. brain manifest in the mind. We don't know how, but we know that it does because yeah. every way you look at it, changing the brain changes the exactly. mind in a yeah. tight enough correlation that there's no really no other viable hypothesis. Mm. So, does yeah, that mean we'll never have the answer? It's just not important to know that answer. It just is, and it doesn't well, matter. I, I, I'm interested in the you know the uh, your discussion about the hard problem because you know Daniel Dennett says essentially it's a non-problem. Yeah, it's not a problem. Yeah. I kind of agree with him in that once you solve all the little problems of how the, what the brain's doing, you know, I do think you've basically solved the whole the hard problem because mm. consciousness it just is this it is the summation of all of the things the brain is doing it's it's interesting maybe we there maybe there isn't something else that's happening maybe mm. it's just this the summation i think that's daniel dennett's essential answer okay. to it yeah. so what what do you think about that well i think uh, you know the, i think it's all too easy to say that you know it's not a problem and the truth of the matter is that if anyone a lay person comes to this they they want to know you know what is this What's creating the sub- subjectivity? You know, so I, I think it's. I, I don't think anyone's going to be satisfied by saying it's not a problem. It's, yeah. it's always going to be a problem. Uh, now, I don't think I don't think it's necessarily a solvable problem. I don't think we have the. I don't even know how you would go about solving it. That's the kind yeah. of issue. Mm. You know, what is the? You know how, how because you, you never have the capability to interrogate another system's output yeah. to get their their view on the world, their subjectivity. So, it, I don't see any feasible way of actually empirically. You know, testing that. What so, about an artificial intelligence testing? I mean, yeah. you can get to down and look at the code and see, and could no, you somehow you, see it in You thing? wouldn't know if the artificial intelligence is just behaving as if yeah. it's in, self-aware or if it actually is experiencing its own self-awareness. That's the thing. The only reason why I know you're really conscious is because I'm conscious and you're a, a person like I am, so I'm assuming that yeah, you right. have the same experience yeah. that I do, but there's no objective way to really know. Yeah, you could be a very, well, it's called the philosopher's zombie. You know, you could be yeah, just a very... <laughs> you he likes be, that. Yeah. I do, I do. <laughs> you just be a very sophisticated automaton. In fact, the P-zombie question is really interesting, the philosophical mm. zombie of somebody, a, a system that acts in every way like a conscious being but doesn't have any quality, no yes. subjective experience. Yeah. And there are those who even think that P-zombies are impossible. Yeah, that if you, thinks so. Yeah, if you have a system that's doing everything you need to do to exi- behave exactly like a conscious being, you're conscious. Right, exactly. Right. Uh, but again, I don't know how to resolve that question, too. That's why the philosophers, I think, are discussing, because I don't know of any empirical way to test these kind of questions. No, I, and I agree with Dennett on that. You know, yeah. If it is indistinguishable from the human yeah. spirit, then it has consciousness. It becomes a non-question. Then. Right. Um, and again, I think the, it's a non-problem. I, well, I, my, again, in my interpretation, what he's really saying is not that it's not a problem, just that the solution is kind of already there and that mm. it's just an emergent property of everything we can say. That if we could yeah. break down each little thing that the brain does, when you finish doing that, at the end of the day, the, what emerges out of that is conscious. Yeah. There isn't this separate thing. Although I'm still open to the notion that mm. there may be some kind of circuit or system in the brain that we haven't really zeroed in on yet mm. that is playing some important role in conscious. Like maybe, like what you said, that's a, I've never heard that one before. I'm going to add that to my list of why we have to be, have quality or be conscious to distinguish a memory from an experience. Yes. That's interesting. So maybe yeah. that's that whatever mm-hmm. part of the brain is doing that, that's yeah. necessary for consciousness. And, and from then on everything is abstracted. So if right. you think about the, the volume of information coming in in the present moment or through the sensations and everything, that has to be abstracted. It has to be you know sort of sieved for the relevant information to be right. stored. You can't 
process all of it, it'd just be overwhelming. So that you know, that flood of information coming in is, is part of the qualia. Yeah. And then from then on, it becomes a fading memory. And you, your moment of awareness lasts for two seconds, three seconds, roughly. And then it just fades, mm-hmm. and it's gone. So you're right. living in this window of time, which is shifting, just sampling yeah, the richness. Right. All right. Well, Bruce... Uh, always fascinating to speak with you. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks for sitting down with us. Thank you a lot. Thank, thank, thank you. Thank you, Bruce. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious. Then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. There's a theme this week. The theme is Thanksgiving, because this is the last oh, show to I should have known come out before known. Thanksgiving. <laughs> Yum. I think I did this before, but I'm sure I did not yes. use these items. Does it even matter, though? We probably wouldn't remember. Just three items. Just three items, even though it's a special one. Here we go. Item number one. While corn is native to the Americas, the innovation of heating corn until it pops was introduced by the English colonists in the 17th century. Item number two, the modern celebration of Thanksgiving in America began 200 years after the Plymouth celebration when a letter that had been lost by the Plymouth colony leader describing the event was rediscovered and publicized. And item number three, wild turkeys can run up to 20 miles per hour and fly up to 55 miles per hour. Evan, go first. Okay, corn is native to the Americas. Well, there were English colonists in the 17th century in the Americas. So, uh, the innovation, well, so did they figure it out? Heating it up until it pops. I don't see why they couldn't have. I'm sure they were throwing all sorts of stuff into the fires and into the kettles to see what, what was going on. So that's entirely plausible. The next one about Thanksgiving in America began 200 years after the Plymouth celebration. 1620 was the Plymouth landing, was it not? 200 years after 1820, the modern celebration of Thanksgiving. Hmm, I don't know about that. If, you know, Certainly there'd be something wrong with the timeline there if this one's going to be wrong. Uh, I think the components of this are perhaps correct, but maybe the timeline is off a bit. The last one, wild turkeys can run up to 20 miles an hour and fly up to 55 miles an hour. I could, I could believe 20 mile an hour run i'm having a hard time with 55 miles per hour flying seems fast but bird that big you'd have to kind of really get going fast in order to be able to take flight i think it's either between the turkey or the document i'll go with the document one uh i yeah something's (laughs) wrong there (laughs) all right all right bob at first i was like what they found out about popping corn that long ago but yeah i mean how long would it take before you you know, you you would actually just throw some stuff on there and, and see what happened. Uh, so I can kind of buy that one. And also the turkey one, I could buy that too. Um, we have wild turkeys at work, and every now and then uh, I see one outside. And they are not small. They are tall, surprisingly tall. And uh, as I get close to them to try to take a picture or whatever, they, they scurry away pretty fast. I could see them being able to run at top speed, perhaps at 20 miles an hour. And I can even buy them flying up to 55 miles an hour. It always amazes me how fast any bird can fly. Most birds can fly. They, they just, it just seems like I don't quite understand how they can fly so fast. and They're just flapping their damn wings. I mean, I don't know how they generate so much forward momentum just by this up-and-down motion. Um, I should it's a mystery. 
Yes. <laughs> the tide goes in, it comes out. Um, Bill O'Reilly. So, um, yeah. So I don't even get as... me started on magnets. <laughs> uh, I could, I could explain that. Um, so I could buy that too. And the second one about Thanksgiving 200 years and this letter, I don't, I don't know exactly what happened, but I just, I don't know. I just have this memory of it not being a letter. It was some other, something else that was quirky. That caused it. Not, I I, so that's the best I can go on uh, with this, because of course I did not prepare for this. But uh, so I will. So I will go with the uh, the Thanksgiving uh, letter thingy. GWE. You have to rely upon your logic and keen analysis. The rare GWE. All right, Jay. They want to hear about the Thanksgiving in America it began 200 years after the Plymouth celebration. I think that one is correct. Um, I swear to God, like I'm remembering. Like the paper cut out from, you know, when I was a kid in um, in grammar school, and the teacher like decorates the wall with like the holiday stuff. And remember, like they'd take construction paper and they'd build like pilgrims and Indians and stuff out of it. And they, you don't remember that? Your teachers ever do that? Sure. And something about that memory is making me think that this one is correct. So I'm going to trust my teacher from many many moons ago. The last one is absolutely correct about the turkeys that can run 20 miles per hour and fly up to 55 miles per hour. That's a fact. Second one, no. I mean, yes, the middle one, sure. The, the remember the, the, the uh, nursery school, the whole bit? Yes, okay, memory, good. The first one, false. This whole popcorn thing, English, that is that is 100% wrong, and I know a lot about popcorn. That's right. <laughs> you sound pretty curious up there, Jay. Yep, thank you. All right, okay. Rebecca. Well, um, Jay speaks truth, I think. I do think turkeys can run and fly quite fast, although coming from an area where there were a lot of turkeys, a uh, very rural area, I can say that normally I only observe turkeys walking at, you know, about point zero 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 four miles an hour across a road, uh, where there's a long line of cars waiting. But I know that when it comes down to it, yeah, they can move quickly. The idea that the modern celebration of Thanksgiving took place 200 years after the Plymouth celebration doesn't strike me at all surprising. Like, it's not like anybody thinks that this was something that was celebrated annually from the first time it was done, right? Because that would be so awkward. Like, oh, it's time to <laughs> once again celebrate the coming together of two peoples, one of whom <laughs> butchered the other just last week. Like, that's not, that wouldn't happen unless a good couple of centuries had allowed time for children to forget <laughs> the what horrible things had been done of early <laughs> to, to one party. So yeah, that that makes total sense to me. So the popcorn thing, I can't believe that Native Americans were here for, you know, several millennia surrounded by corn and were like, they just never, it never occurred to them to put it on the fire. And then <laughs> Europeans showed up and, <laughs> and were immediately like, what's that corn? Hey, have you tried putting it over here? Holy shit, popcorn. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm with Jay on that one. That one seems like the obvious <laughs> fake to me. Okay. So we have a rare. Jay Rebecca Alliance this week. Yeah. And you know, that's oh, the yes. most terrifying alliance you can have. Mm, I terrifying. Think that's when, no, we're <laughs> it's, okay. it's either going to be, it's either going to be magnanimously correct or horribly wrong. <laughs> that's all right. We go down together. 
All right, so let's take let's start with number three, since you all agree with that one. Wild turkeys can run up to twenty miles per hour and fly up to fifty-five miles per hour. You all buy that one, and that one is science. Science, it is science. Yes, wild turkeys are quite spry. They can't sustain fifty-five miles per hour, but they can fly in bursts of speed up to fifty-five miles per hour, is reported, and they can book. They could run pretty darn fast. Did you know wild turkeys were almost? They were yeah. on the brink. They were yep. almost extinct in, in North America. Their, their numbers were down into the tens of thousands, which is Jeez. very endangered. That's, that is on the brink. But um, they were reintroduced and protected. And then over time, they rebounded. And now they're back up into the millions. Yeah. Millions. Uh, wow. Well, over Connecticut. Connecticut wasn't, that's for sure. wasn't the turkey going to be chosen as the national bird? Yep. Well, not ben really. Ben Franklin's ben, choice. Ben Franklin Frank made Lamar. his choice public that you know he wanted the wild turkey. But it, I don't know how seriously it was ever considered, but that was his choice. Oh, his no. Choice. And everybody mean, was like, Ben, you've been drinking. Yeah, he didn't mean, <laughs> he didn't mean wild that turkey. wild turkey. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah, now there are turkeys all over the place. In, in my house, which I'm, I'm mostly surrounded by woods, I mean, flocks of turkeys through all the time until I got a big dog, and now he pretty much keeps them at bay. You can hear them gobbling in the woods, but every now and then you could, they will encroach upon the, the yard, and I absolutely see how fast they can move when my dog is chasing after them. They, they are fast little buggers. Dem, the, the domestic turkey cannot fly. All right, let's move on to number two. The modern celebration of Thanksgiving in America began 200 years after the Plymouth celebration when a letter that had been lost by the Plymouth Colony leader describing the event was rediscovered and publicized. Bob and Evan think that one is the fiction. Jay and Rebecca think this one is science. And this one is science. Yes! Good job, Jay, Thank you. Me. Thank you, construction paper people. <laughs> construction paper people? Yeah, yeah so it, this was the, the original celebration was probably never meant to be an annual affair. It was probably more of a harvest celebration than a Thanksgiving, which traditionally at that time – Days of Thanksgiving were days of fasting and sacrifice. This was a more of a harvest celebration with feasting. Gluttony. Feasting, no fasting. And of course, there's always a lot of discussion about what they eat at, you know, at, at that celebration. They probably did eat. There is reports, you know, in the letter of describing the thing that they, uh, the colonists hunted wild fowl, some of which may have been turkey. Um, they were eating seasonal vegetables, probably lots of pumpkin and squash. The Indians, Contributed a lot as well. Corn, of course. Succotash. I didn't realize succotash was an succotash. Indian dish. Succotash. Always fun to say. The Wampanoag. Wampanoag Indians. Oh. They did reportedly kill five deer for the feast, so there was venison there as well. Wow. I just realized that I think I, I have a lot of Thanksgiving trivia in my head because I knew that. Yeah, the Wampanoag. You knew that? Yep. I did know that. So, yeah, so it was not until the 1800s that the letter was rediscovered. Describing the, describing that event, the idea was kind of popularized and developed into our modern concept of of Thanksgiving. And do you know um, which president made it a an official national holiday? Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln. Ah, Abraham Lincoln. Yep. Holy shit! Oh my later, God! So. I know a lot about Thanksgiving. <laughs> and wow, Jay, Jay. which so president? How did I know Skeptic's that? Guide to Thanksgiving. <laughs> when? <laughs> when and which president? Solidified the date as the fourth Thursday in November. I'll be impressed if you come on, Jay. You Come on, Jay. Come on, Jay. <laughs> Was it FDR? Yes. Oh my, oh my God. God. 
Oh my god! I'm serious. <laughs> it was FTR. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Ask, ask Part of the new deal, number. I heard. What's tomorrow's lottery numbers? Quick, ask. ask. <laughs> Sorry, it has nothing to do with Thanksgiving. Jay is the best at Every fifth day. grade social studies. <laughs> Every day is Thanksgiving. Right. It's just Every lurking so somewhere in his brain. Well, Steve, is this what it feels like to be you? <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. What was the name of the leader of the Plymouth Colony whose letter? Inspired the uh, eventual holiday. I don't know, John Smith, Edward Winslow. Close. Edward I was Winslow. close. Uh, that yeah, was you very, were very close. close. Yeah, yeah, you were close. <laughs> all right. All of this means that while corn is native to the Americas, the innovation of heating corn until the pops was introduced by the English colonists in the 17th century is fiction. Obviously, now, Bob, Bob, it's interesting. You were what you were thinking that maybe that was too far in the past for popcorn. Bob but, yeah, was just, just thinking I'm, like, well, microwaves weren't invented <laughs> until <laughs> like, right? like the movie theaters just, weren't in around. Yeah, I've just never come across you know, uh, you know popcorn in history. It's just like yeah, the, the history of popcorn. There. You know, it's been around for <laughs> millennia, as, as Rebecca said. And in fact, that may have been the most common use of corn. You know, initially. Yep. So the uh, the Aztecs used popcorn quite a bit. They used it uh, as food. But also as decoration. Yeah. Kind of like what we do. Some people do at Christmas. They string popcorn on a thread and use that as garland around the tree. It's so old. They, it's people have been popping yeah. popcorn for, I think, over a thousand years. Okay, yeah. professor. Yeah. Yeah. Jay, why do you know so much about popcorn? <laughs> I stumbled on like popcorn trivia and I just read like, read it for 30 minutes and I just picked up a lot of popcorn info one time. In Seattle, there's a hostess factory and it looks like the most depressing place on the planet. And so uh, my friends and I wanted to go get a tour of it. I was online trying to figure out if I could get a tour of it, which it turns out I couldn't. When I found on Hostess's website, like Twinkie facts, and one of the Twinkie facts was that the first Twinkie was banana flavored. And I noted it and immediately moved on uh, to do something else with my day. And that night I was at pub trivia, which I did like every Wednesday night. And that was a question. They were like, what was the first flavor of Twinkie? Yep. And I was just like, guys, it's banana. And they're all arguing. I'm like, guys, it was banana. Trust me. I'm a Twinkie expert. Oh. And they were blown away, blown away. Got the point. twinker. <laughs> you see, it's those kind of things that uh, magicians and psychics exploit <laughs> You know, if you, like, what are the odds that you're, that, that little factoid happened to be relevant later in the same day? Then, and you were an opportunist and you, you could, you presented yourself as a Twinkie expert because you just happened to have that little fact in your head. But seriously, but like, psychics would do the same thing. They'll, they'll come across a little bit of information by chance and then the opportunity will strike later and they'll be able to demonstrate some amazing knowledge that they couldn't possibly have had and to convince people that they're psychic. It's the, it's the same thing. All right, Jay, give us a quote, please. This is a quote sent in by a listener named Clay Cavanis from Jersey City, New Jersey. And uh, this is a quote from someone that we all uh, not did not know personally, but someone that we, we thought was really funny. I'll give you a hint. I'm going to read the quote. You ready? I'm a scientist, and I know what constitutes proof. But the reason I call myself by my childhood name is to remind myself that a scientist must also be absolutely like a child. If he sees a thing, he must say that he sees it, whether it was what he thought he was going to see or not. See first, think later, then test, but always see first. Otherwise, you will only see what you were expecting. Most scientists forget that. 
That was Alfalfa from The Little Rascals. No, but that was a good guess. It's Wonko the Sane. Who's the author, Bob? Adams. Douglas Adams. It's from a it's from a book called So Long and Thanks for All the Fish. Hey, I have an announcement. I'm going to be at the Australian Skeptics National Convention in Melbourne, Australia. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's November 30th until December 2nd of this year. It's in Melbourne. You can find out more by going to vicskeptics.wordpress.com. I don't know. Just you know what? Just Google Australian skeptics, and you'll find it. All right. Well, have a good time there, Rebecca. We do wish we could be coming along with you. Me too. And thank you all for joining me this week. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcast, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. For questions, suggestions and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zoom, or your portal of choice. <laughs>